last week looking at this first kind of glimpse at the life of this ordinary guy named Elijah, which as you see the title of our sermon series is someone who is just like us, is what James 5 says. And what we see at the end of last week is Elijah, this prophet of God, this ordinary man of God, makes this pretty incredible pronouncement at the end of chapter 18. He says this in verse 15, As the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to the king, the evil king, the power to to be of that day, King Ahab today. You see, it's interesting that this ordinary guy named Elijah from the backwoods, from the sticks, out of nowhere, from Tishba, a place that we don't even know exists because no one cared to make sure people knew it existed, to preserve it. From that kind of place, he's the one that stands up to the powers that were coming against him and God's people. He's the one that points a palace administrator, Obadiah, who has all, you know, all the power next to the king, who's in fear of his life. Say, I don't know, Elijah, going before the king. This is not so a good idea. And then Elijah, the ordinary Elijah in 17 verse 1, we see in 1815, make this kind of pronouncement. As surely as the Lord Almighty lives. You see, Elijah, the ordinary guy that he is, he's able to point the palace administrator to see God clearly in a moment where fear was taken over in the face of power. How? I mean, how can... Rough, tough, redneck Elijah do that. Well, we taught you this prayer to pray. Remember that? It said this, Father, help me face that power. Not by my power, but by your power. That's how. That's what the pronouncement is in 18 verse 15. Father, help me face that power of addiction. Father, help me face that power of debt. Father, help me face that power of generational poverty. Father, help me face that power of a single parent. Or losing my spouse, who I've been married to for 50, 60 years, now being alone. Father, help me face whatever the power that is, not by my power, but by your power. That's how. And I know, I don't know about you, but when I, when I, when I say that prayer and I pray it and I left last week and I started studying this text today, I just thought, but how do you get there? <laughs> how do you pray that prayer? genuinely, honestly, with conviction, with belief that this can actually happen. But not by my power, but by your power, I can face this power that is in front of me. How does Elijah in 17 verse 1 make the pronouncement in 1815? How does he pray this prayer? And friends, there's a reason why we skip the rest of chapter 17. Did you notice that last week? We studied 17 verse 1, and then we jumped straight to 18 verse 1. You're like, well, there's a whole rest of the chapter. Here's why. In order for ordinary you and me to say yes to the extraordinary call of God that he has on our lives, we've got to live in chapter 17. We've got to live in chapter 17. We've got to lean into chapter 17. We've got to soak up chapter 17 and and ring out everything that is there in chapter 17 as much as we can. That's how. This chapter 17 shows us how ordinary you and me can say yes to the extraordinary call of God. It starts in verse 2 of chapter 17 if you want to open up your Bibles there. And you can scroll on your phones, a new version app to First Kings chapter 17, verse 2. It starts off like this. Then the word of the Lord 
came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kirith Ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. This is what we see that happens in chapter 17. God sends Elijah to boot camp. You see, every man or woman that does something extraordinary for God goes through ordinary struggles with God. Let me say that again. Every man or woman that does extraordinary things for God goes through ordinary struggles with God. It reminds me of smoking brisket. I love some good barbecue. When I lived in Indiana, um, they called me the barbecue snob because we'd go to a barbecue restaurant in Indiana, which tasted like they heated up a piece of meat in a microwave and poured some sauce on it. Like, that's not barbecue. I love getting some good barbecue, getting a big old uh, um, uh, piece of brisket. And I, wanted, I so wanted to bring my smoker in here and smoke a brisket during the whole sermon. But Steve Dennis said no, our facilities manager, which makes total sense because we'd set off the fire alarm and we would, it'd be crazy. But I love smoking brisket because you get this big old hunk of meat here and you put it on the smoker and my new... Uh, 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 pit boss Austin XL wood pellet smoker and it gets the smoke all going and you get on there for 14 hours or so low and slow right and you get a brisket on there and the way see I, I the first time I did a brisket I looked up what what temperature it needed to be inside of the brisket the internal temp in order for it to be done in order to be safe to eat right and they said 165 and so I put the brisket in there and I heated it up and I took it off at 165 and it was terrible it was awful. I mean, it was like cutting through a rock. It was so hard and it was tough. And then finally I got some slices. And it was like eating beef jerky. And I was like, what happened to this brisket? And so I was new to the smoking world and the barbecue world. And so I began doing some research and I learned some things about smoking brisket. One of them is this, that there's this period of, of internal temperature of the brisket when you're smoking it called the stall. And it's when you get to around 165 degrees and that kind of just stalls out at that temperature for maybe an hour or two or so and you got to just keep putting in the fuel you got to keep putting in the heat and the fire you can't rush the stall you can't increase the temperature no no. you just got to keep on low and slow and slowly the internal meat that just kind of holds that brisket together that's really tough that's really tight you just begin breaking it down slowly until finally it's nice and tender and juicy and who's going to go get barbecue after church today right? Yeah, I know. I know. Me too. And then finally you get that brisket above 200 degrees internal temp, but it's still not done. You got to keep smoking that thing until you touch it and you wiggle it like jello. And then it's ready to eat. It's like, okay, that's good. And then you slice through it and just, it's like slicing like butter. It's just nice and tender and juicy and good. You see, this reminds me so much of what Elijah is going through here in this text. Because God says, you know what? Before I can do something extraordinary with you, i got to break you down. Because this broken world, this sin-filled world that we live in, it makes our hearts hard. It, 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 it's so, it breaks us and horrible things happen to us and do we do horrible things to each other. And we just become this rough and tough and tense people. Hard exteriors protecting ourselves from pain, 
not letting anybody else in, building up the walls. And it's, there's these membranes of self, of self-protection, of self-preservation, of self-elevation that God wants to break down so that he can do something extraordinary with you. One person I heard say this, I don't know who it was, but he said that God made the whole world out of nothing. So we must become nothing so that he can make something out of us. And that's what I see in this text today is these tough membranes of Elijah that God is breaking down so that he could do something with him, something extraordinary beyond our natural incapacities. Look at verse 7. Look at this kind of the second wave and moment of, 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 of the, the breaking down of Elijah that happens in verse 7. It says that sometime later, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Jesus, I mean, God said to Elijah, go to Kirith Ravine, to the brook. I'll give you water there, and and ravens will bring you some bread. So Elijah obeys. He goes. What's interesting is there's no next step. God just says, go there and wait. So Elijah does. And while he is waiting, the brook dries up. There's no water anymore. It's interesting that God sends Elijah to a place called Kareth, which means cutting. It's the cutting place. It's the trimming place. It's the place where those rough edges are smoothed out, where the stall happens. And typically in the cutting place, we feel forgotten. Who is God to you when you feel like you are nothing to him? When you say yes and you obey him and you go to the brook and then whenever you take that step of faith, whenever you say yes, I'm going I'm to give or I'm going to start serving, the brook is dried up. See, it's the, ordinarily, it's the ordinary problem of resentment. It's ordinary Elijah, just like us. You see, this extraordinary calling can only be accomplished by emptying of you of yourself, not filling you of yourself. And in Kirith Ravine, in obscurity, away from the glamour and the light, God cuts away at the tough membrane of Elijah. And thus resentment sets in. Why didn't our hell house sell as fast as theirs? Why weren't my kids totally healthy like theirs? Why wasn't my upbringing as easy as theirs? This is what we learn at Kareth from Elijah, just like us in the midst of our needs. We learn that extraordinary potential is disguised as ordinary problems. We learned that extraordinary potential is disguised as ordinary problems. Winston Churchill said it this way when someone asked him, what's the difference between an optimist and a pessimist? He said, a pessimist sees the difficulty in every opportunity. But an optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. When you come into contact with ordinary problems in your life, feeling forgotten, do you see that as a difficulty? Or the extraordinary opportunity and potential of God to teach you something and to do something in your life in the midst of your resentment. To learn what it means to be content, whatever the circumstance. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in the confessing church during World War II. And he was arrested because he was part of a plot to assassinate Hitler. And so he was engaged, never got married, was caught, was sent off to prison. And short, a little while after he'd been in prison, living his life out there, he was executed, hung for his actions. But a month before he was executed, he wrote this poem. Who am I? They often tell me I would step from my cell, I would step from my cell's confinement calmly, 
cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They also tell me I would bear the days of misfortune calmly, smilingly, proudly, like one accustomed to win. Am I really then all that which other men tell of? Or am I only what I know of myself, restless and longing and sick, like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath, weary and empty at praying at thinking at making, faint and ready to say farewell to it all? Who am I, this or the other? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. I am yours. This is what God teaches you in Kirith Ravine. He teaches you that you are his. That he has not forgotten you, but that he needs you to be content, not by the benefits of being his kid, right? Not by the gifts that you get, not by the health or the wealth or the prosperity or the success at work, because, at work, because Kirith Ravine pushes against the prosperity gospel, which says when you follow Jesus, everything in your life is good. Everything goes well. No, 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 no. The brook dried up for Elijah. And when you say yes to God, that first step might mean the brook dries up for you. The brook drying up doesn't always mean that God is displeased with you. It actually might mean that you're right at the center of his will. You see, this is the first membrane broken down in our time of need as we learn not to be resentful towards God and jealous of others, but content in every circumstance. Look at the next one in our smoker of spirituality that comes about. In verses 8 and 9, Then the, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Finally, the word of the God, God shows up. I wonder how long, what, what period of time happens between verse 7 and verse 8. The brook drives up. Is it a day? A week? A month? But finally, the word of the Lord comes. And this is what it says. That's what God says. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. Okay, let me explain what God is doing with Elijah. I need to use some geography, okay? So, let's say this center aisle is the Jordan River, okay? Kirith Ravine is over on this side, on the east side of the Jordan River, okay? And I'm doing east for me, not east for you, Okay? It's easier for me. I get lost inside. I don't know which direction is which. So north, east. Okay. So it's on the east side. Now, Samaria, or Israel, where Elijah's a most wanted man by King Ahab, is on the west side of the Jordan River. It's over here. Okay. To go to Zarephath in Sidon is to go west and north along the coast. And there's really two ways to do that. One is for Elijah to cross the land, the jurisdiction of where he's a wanted man. I don't think he's going to go that direction. The other way is to go north along the Jordan River, north of Israel, and then west across Phoenicia to Zarephath, the region of Sidon. Now, everyone says, oh yeah, that's a safe place. That's where he would go. Understand this. That's not safe either. Because King Ahab's wife is a nasty woman named Jezebel. And she is from Sidon. Her dad's the king. You think he would know about the famine of his little girl and the prophet that she hates. 
And God says, go to Zarephath, which literally the verb form of that word is to melt or to smelt. The, the noun form of Zarephath, that city he's going to go to, is crucible. So God says to Elijah, go from the cutting place to the crucible place. Uh, how about no? Right? Not there. Jezebel hates me, and that's where her daddy is. Yet God speaks, and Elijah obeys. He obeys and goes to Kirith Ravine, and his resentment is cut down to contentment. God speaks, speaks, and Elijah is supposed to obey and go to the crucible place, straight into danger, into risk. You see, in our time of need, the next membrane that God is working to cut down is our fear. The ordinary problem that Elijah is experiencing in this moment that he's facing is the feeling of vulnerability. He's a wanted man. The king and the queen are out for his neck. He's being asked by God to go out into the desert, go out across enemy territory, the jurisdiction of your enemies, into danger. It reminds me of the time that my dad was at home by himself on a Friday evening. My mom was out of the country on a trip. And my sisters were at a CIY event, a Christ and Youth event, for, with their youth group. And so he was just home by himself, hanging out, Friday night, watching a movie. Um, and in the middle of that night, you know, not, not, uh, 9, 30, 10 o'clock, he's watching the movie. In the middle of that movie, the Holy Spirit speaks to him, he said, in a way that was so clear, it only happened one or two other times. And the Holy Spirit to, said to him, get up and go to the casino. My dad said, excuse me? And he tried to shake that off. And the Holy Spirit said, get up and go to the casino. He's like, um, okay, God, that's not typically a place that the elder of the church goes without his wife by himself when she's out of town. Like, that feels kind of risky. That feels kind of dangerous. That's kind of a vulnerable place to be in. What will people think? Fears rose up in his spirit and in his soul and in his mind. He's like, that's, I don't think that's where I'm supposed to be. Or I'm supposed to be. But he could not shake this. And this is kind of a gray area. It's like, what do you do when the Holy Spirit says, yeah, go do something crazy like that in a place where you typically don't go? Yet it was so strong that he got up and put on his clothes got in the car, and there's lots of casinos in Oklahoma. And so he just kind of picked a random one and drove to the casino. And he walked in, there's smoke, and he's like, what am I doing here? And then there was a non-smoking room, and so he went over there, and as he walked into that non-smoking room, at a blackjack table by himself, was one of my dad's best friends from college who had just signed the divorce papers for his second failed marriage that morning. And the guy looked up, not expecting my dad to ever be there, locking eyes. What are you doing here? And he said, I think I'm here for you. The word of the Lord came to Elijah and it said, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. You see, it's the problem of feeling vulnerable. That problem contains in it the potential to learn to walk by faith. Now, I'm not saying everybody go to the casino after church today. What I am saying is this. Jesus consistently went to places 
and hung out with people that the religious got angry about. And the non-Christians and the pagans and those that didn't follow Jesus said, typically people like you don't come here. You're different. You're not engaging in everything, but yet you're also loving and welcoming. And there's this middle ground that somehow Jesus is able to kind of confuse those that aren't believers and really tick off the religious. Because he walks by faith. Because Elijah walks by faith. He sees extraordinary potential disguised as ordinary problems. It's in our needs that God is breaking down fears that we might learn what it means to walk by faith. So Elijah obeys and he goes to Zarephath. But look at what God tells him will happen at Zarephath. It's 1 Kings 17 verse 9, kind of the second part of it. It says this, I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. A widow. One of the neediest groups of people in the ancient world were widows. And God tells Elijah that after this journey across dangerous territory, stepping into risk, that his helper, his savior, the one who will provide him food and care for his needs is a widow herself, a fragile and needy person. It'd be like saying, go to Kansas City and a homeless person will take care of you. Friends, this is this is crazy. Widows don't take care of prophets. Prophets take care of widows. God is saying, put all of your faith and trust and reliance upon this woman. Elijah must be thinking, okay, God, this might be like a special kind of widow. Like this is like a widow that, that has been really diligent and saving and has, has uh, uh, you know, food set aside and money and resources or has kind of special needs or special power. And so he goes to Zarephath. He makes a long journey and he's protected and he's safe and he gets there and he gets to the city gate and he says, there's the widow. And he goes and he says, hey, uh, could you give me some bread and some water? And this is what she says to him. This is the widow that God sent to take care of Elijah. Verse 12. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. I think the next question he asked is, do you have another friend that's a widow? That I'm supposed to... Like, that's not... You're... God sent me here because the widow was supposed to provide for me food and water. She's desperate. And this is who God has set aside for Elijah in his time of need. See, there's a problem that we all face in our needs. And it's the problem of feeling completely helpless. Right? When we continue encountering power or, or, or the problems of this world, we feel a lot of times that these problems and these ordinary things that happen to us that just get us down, they become pervasive. It's like, it's not just that this thing am I bad, but every area of my life is bad. It feels like it's permanent. Life will never be the same. It's always going to be this bad. It's always going to be this way. And it's personal. It's like, man, it's because of me. I caused this. I'm the issue. This is what happens for us in this culture that we live in. Especially when our pride is challenged and broken down. We feel completely helpless. Go, man of God, to a weak, vulnerable, fragile widow. She will take care of you. Friends, we don't even like, we don't like to ask anyone for help in our culture. 
Because if we need help, it means that we, we messed up or we're a failure or we're weak, right? But look at Elijah's response. Look at the lessons that he had already learned and look at his response of faith, verse 13. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. You see, in the midst of this ordinary problem of pride is embedded the extraordinary potential to learn humility, humility to trust God's plan for Elijah's well-being. For him, the prophet to say, okay, I'm going to trust that this widow is going to care for me who has nothing by the miraculous power of God. Not by what I can do, but what God can do through weakness. Not what makes sense to Elijah, but what hopefully will give glory and honor to God. It reminds me of a podcast I heard about a month or so ago. It was Andy Stanley's leadership podcast. He was interviewing Tim Elmore on the importance of generational diversity in the workplace. It was a fascinating podcast. But one thing Tim did that just really stuck out to me for this sermon specifically was he talked about the benefits, the positives of the current culture that we live in. Let me show them to you real quick. They're kind of, you can remember them with the acronym of SCENE, S-C-E-N-E. The positive of our culture is speed. We do things quickly. We can like travel around the world quickly. We can have things at fast pace, fast, uh, high speed internet. Then there's convenience right? We, a lot of technology that we have in, in inventions is to make things more convenient for everybody. You can get Amazon Prime and have that package delivered to you tomorrow. Entertainment. We can have entertainment driving down the road on, our, on, our, on the TV, in the car, or on our iPhones, or our iPads, wherever we're at. You get in the doctor's office and that kid's crying. You say, give him an iPhone, right? Entertain that kid. You can have any, and actually, our, our, our modern world has made entertainment accessible to the masses, not just the social elite. That's one benefit of our culture. Then there's nurture. We say that every person deserves, I mean, every, we want to make sure people are safe and, and protected. And we have uh, lots of uh, uh, science that helps us navigate in social structures and, and, and experiments that help us make sure people are safe, like kids in car seats. And then you have entitlement. This positive saying, every person, no matter who they are, their mental, physical ability, the language they speak, or the color of their skin, they are entitled and have inalienable rights, like everyone else. These are some positives of our culture, that our culture gives us. But there's something interesting about all of those. At the center of all of them is self. It's self. Sorry, my contact just came out. Okay, we're going to do this with... One contact now. So, at the center of all those positives is the center of self. How quickly can I have it for me? I don't want to wait any longer. I want things convenient for me. I want a remote not to get up and turn the TV on and off. Entertainment for me. Nurture. I want to be protected and safe. Entitlement. I deserve certain things. There's the self is at the center of those things. And there's some unforeseen negative ramifications when it comes to these positives in our culture. The first one is this. Slow is bad. Anything that takes a long time, that... That, that, that's bad. We got to make that faster. The next one is hard is bad. If it's not convenient, if anything that's complex or hard or difficult to figure out, I man, we got to make that uh, streamline that some way somehow. The next one is boring is bad. If I can't have entertainment, if, if something isn't professionally done for me right here, right now, I mean, if it's boring, I'm out. 
risk is bad. If it's dangerous, if it's not safe, I don't want to do it. I don't want to take risks. I want everything to be conservative and, and explained and spelled out for me. And lastly, labor is bad. If I have to work hard to earn it, I just deserve to get what I get, the rights. I don't want to have to work through this. And once, when you look at that, that list on the right side, that's the crucible of Zarephath. The extraordinary potential of learning humility in the midst of ordinary problems is that it breaks down our pride, our fear, our resentment through the long, boring, hard, risky, and laborious path of following Jesus. See, that's low and slow for a brisket. Spiritual maturity. Yeah, we, we, we went quick and fast like microwaving some ramen. That's, that's fake spirituality. And if we're not careful, in our pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, we will, in our ordinary problems, miss the extraordinary potential of living life to the full according to the Jesus way. Remember, extraordinary potential disguised as ordinary problems. Potential for learning contentment, for learning how to walk by faith, and learning humility. Yet there's one more tough membrane that God transforms ordinary problems into extraordinary potential for growth. And here it is. It's the problem of feeling crazy. Look at how this story concludes in verse 17. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? You see, Elijah, he was able to provide for this widow and her son with this bread and this water again and again and again. And then sometime later, her son dies. And she blames Elijah. And look what Elijah does. He says this, give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then, you ready for this? He stretched himself out on the boy three times. Face-to-face, hand-to-hand, front-on-front, a dead body. This is unclean for a Jew to do. It's just gross. But he does it three times. And cry out to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. Friends, this is crazy. This is insane. Up to this point in biblical history, there is not one moment, one story, one experience of a dead person being brought to life. Now we live on this side of this story, all of this scripture here, and we know that this guy becomes the life, the son is is raised from the dead, Elisha raises a guy from the dead, Jesus raises a girl from the dead, and Lazarus from the dead, and Paul raises Eutychus from the dead. I mean, these things happen, and Jesus himself is raised from the dead. We have the benefit of all this history, but up until this moment, this had not ever happened. This is crazy talk. These are crazy behaviors. People look at him and say, man, what are you doing? But it's the walk by faith. It's that Belief that God will do something unprecedented, something we've never seen before. You see, when God calls us to operate out of our needs, 
He breaks down the hard membranes of self and resentment and fear and pride. And lastly, he breaks down that hard membrane of our habits. Too often when we come into contact with new needs in our culture, we revert to the same old habits that got us through the things before. Randy Garris used to say this all the time. He would say, God doesn't do the same thing twice. Like there's not two Red Seas. God's always looking to do something different to bring glory and honor him that's why he tells moses don't use your staff to strike the rock quit going through the same old habits speak to the rock i want to do something new that glory and honor may come to me not to your habits you see this is what we do we revert to the old things and sometimes yesterday's successes are now today's problems the things that worked then won't work now we truly have to learn the lessons of the crucible that the lessons of contentment of walking by faith of humility and of submission to god's unprecedented plan now remember extraordinary potential disguises ordinary problems it isn't relying on the successful habits of yesterday but on the crazy submission of god's plan and call today as i uh, close what we're going to do is we're going to have a time of communion around this room. And I want to give you, in this, this smoker spirituality today, four statements to take home. It comes from Dr. Raymond Edmonds' little book, In Quietness and Confidence. He writes about a godly man who faced just such a trial as Elijah did. This is how he met it. He was quiet for a while with his Lord, Then he wrote these words for himself. First, God brought me here. It's by his will I am in this strange place. In that fact, I will rest. Next, he will keep me here in his love and give me grace to behave of his child. Third, he'll make the trial a blessing, teaching me the lessons he intends me to learn and working in me the grace he means to bestow. Last, in his time he can bring me out again, how and when he knows. Can Let me give you these four statements. Put them up on the screen here. Here they are. In your time of need, in your cutting place or your crucible place, here are four statements that I want to challenge you to pray to God. I am here by God's appointment. That's the statement of contentment. I am in his keeping. That's a statement of walking by faith. I am under his training. That's the statement of humility. He will show me his purposes in his time. That's the statement of submission. Keep those four up there. Maybe you should write those down today. Maybe even if you're a Christian or not, this is what I'm asking you to do is you want to experience God, you want to know if this thing is real. When you face problems, you may face trials, pray these four statements. Try and be content in who God says you are, even if you don't believe in God. Try and be a walk in faith that what God's calling you, he will protect you and he will walk you through this process. Try and pray that prayer of humility. The Lord, teach me through this. What do you want me to learn? And lastly, pray that prayer of submission that no matter how crazy it is, I will take that step and do what you were calling me to do. This is what we're going to do as we have communion stations around the room. I'm going to go ahead and ask at this time any elder, staff member, or our prayer team to get up and stand around the room. Go ahead and get up and move right now you're one of those people and we're gonna and we're gonna have a a, a time of silence 
where you can come up and take communion at one of these stations, where you can go and pray with one of these people. We're going to have a time where you, uh, uh, and, and we'll read some scripture together, and we'll sing uh, one more last song to uh, worship Jesus um, before we're dismissed. But during this time, feel free to come up at any moment and take communion, the bread and the cup. Feel free at any time to go to one of these people around the room and pray with them and, and pray over these four statements on this uh, 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 screen. We're going to keep those up there during the silence. Because when I think about the cutting place and the crucible place, I can't help but think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The feeling of being forgotten. The disciples had fallen asleep. His cry to God was, my God, why have you forsaken me? I can't help but think of Jesus and the feeling of, of, of fear and vulnerability. He says, Lord, take this cup from me. He knew at that moment that one of his own was betraying him. I can't help but think of Jesus and that feeling of helplessness. That God said this was the way to reconcile the world back to the Father. To forgive sins and to rescue his creation was for the Son to die on the cross. And Jesus said, take this cup from me, Lord. I don't want to do this. And lastly, I think he faced that feeling of being crazy. No one had died, descended into hell, defeated sin and death and, and Satan and all of his minions, and risen from the dead, being the firstborn of new creation, establishing a new heaven. This had not happened before. And yet in every moment, in every ordinary problem, there's the extraordinary potential of Jesus to say again and again and again, not my will, but yours. statements and say, Lord, in every single one, not my will, but